A famous Australian racing car driver, Bob Jane, has just died at the age of 89, but more modern generations may well know him as the face on a tyre retailing system, Bob Jane's T-Marts. But, of course, he was famous in Australia and did very well in early races. One of the people who raced at that time and occasionally with him was our good friend Bob Holden, who joins us on the line now. Bob, do you remember much of Bob Jane? Not a great deal. Um, He was a definite showman, but uh, I think the very first races that I remember him being at was a Fisherman's Bend in Melbourne. When was that? 56, I think, 5 or 6, <laughs> round about then. He was driving a custom line forward. Right. Big fat thing. What were you in? 203 Peugeot. You've always gone for small cars, haven't you? And Bob was really uh, some of the much more bigger cars, wasn't he? Well, well there was a big reason for that. He had money, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but um, people laugh about my little cars, but I still... Oh, I tell them always that uh, I can almost afford a little one. I certainly can't afford a big one. But anyway, (laughs) that's my story. Now, at that time, you say he brought money to it. It wasn't nearly at the time when there was the same amount of money as there is today, by any means, was there? Oh, no, no. It was that way that we used to drive our cars to the racetrack sort of thing or to work on Monday morning type of deal. (laughs) So it was a different world altogether, and it was a lot more fun, I think, in those days. Bob, as I said, was was learning then. He used to race push bikes, the same as I had before him. The cars were sort of a progression from racing, because it was... Being competitive is the important thing. It's a competitive spirit, wasn't it? It certainly is. You're still racing now and still enjoy that. It was a time, too, uh, you have always, but particularly then worked on your own cars? I certainly did. I don't know whether Bob did much, but uh, he could well have at that stage because he used to sell cars and I think he used to get worn out ones and build them up to sell them and all that sort of thing, as you did in those days. Was there good camaraderie at the time? He used to go as hard as a poor little old car, whatever he had went, or if it was a good car, it usually went better than the old ones. But it was just one of those things. You did the best you could with what you had. How did you go against the bigger ones? Was it always the fact that the big racing cars were going to be out the front? Oh, usually the more powerful one, of course. But I had a lot of fun, and uh, I could afford it. That was the important thing. If I got a quicker car, I might have afforded it for one or two events a year, and that would be it, you know. But as it is, I used to race every second weekend, and away we went. Really? It raced that often? Oh, yeah. I used to... Well, in the old days, I used to race every second weekend sort of thing, and I used to rally in the one in between. (laughs) Was that typical? It seemed, if you go back, there were things like, and I know it's much more, you know, the open wheelers, Sir Jack Brabham and the Tasman series. They had four races, four races in New Zealand and four in Australia. I mean, was there much more racing then? Oh, yes, a fair bit. I ran in the Tasman series and the Australian side of it and with my own car once again. Um, the motor out of our racing sedan we used to put in an open wheeler that Lynx built. That was against some huge big names. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
some of the names are very important, and like Bruce McLaren and and those sort of people, they were very very special. And uh, some of the English guys, they were here, but um, Bruce McLaren was the one I <coughs> I remember most because he was very good to me and helped me a lot. Seriously, I mean, this is something that you don't think about today. There you are. A guy who, if I might say, could tinker in his shed wonderfully well, and there you were entering against Formula One champions. Yeah, well, that was a bit. You couldn't do that now, of course. No. <laughs> but in those days, it was pretty special. But the Bruce McLaren thing was quite interesting because we'd built the Lynx Peugeot, as we called it, at Lynx Engineering with John Berlin and and the boys. And that particular Tasman series, we um, started the car up for the first time on a Monday or early Tuesday morning, I think, and pushed it out to the trailer and headed off for Melbourne to get on the boat to go to Tasmania for the Tasman race, first Tasman race. And that was a car completely untried, untested, uneven. It hadn't even been on the road. It was just pushed out the shed onto the track, onto the trailer. But uh, when I got down there... See, this is a different sort of world. For instance, we uh, we were work, finishing the car off in a workshop down in Launceston, mm-hmm. and Jack Brabham was doing the same thing with his car in the same workshop. Both of us, would you believe, drove the car, the two race cars, out to the circuit on the road. <laughs> Like you can imagine running a Formula One car down the road in Sydney or Melbourne or anywhere else. <laughs> and then uh, the, the the wonderful thing about McLaren was that uh, like he was with Cooper and all those people in, in England. And anyway, after the first practice session, my car had been timed at 178 miles an hour down the straight, which was a bit interesting to someone like Bruce because he came looking to see what sort of car it was because it was nearly as quick as his in a straight line that was yeah. and uh, anyway uh, when he saw the car he said where did where did you get this car from and I said we've just built it and uh, he said what do you mean build it I said well we just built it in Sydney done it ourselves he said what sort of engines in it and I said oh the motor out of my race sedan which we were also using there at the same meeting towing the race car and racing the sedan as well. So that got him intrigued. And then uh, he was intrigued about the way it went and what it looked like. And the, the, for then, the rest of the Tasman series in Australia, he followed me every single session I ever went out on. He wanted to know how the car went and what it was doing and all that sort of stuff. And he said, if I was worried about something, he'd suggest something to do. Is that right? Only one at a time. And... Uh, away we went and we finished quite well i think it's a wonderful concept of camaraderie isn't it oh yeah different world incidentally there was a little bit more to that what it was um only oh i don't know how long it would have been ago five five ten years in that period anyway uh, my lady was uh, playing with the computer and she found a, a, a picture of the lynx the lynx persia right and it was at sandown Back in 1960, whatever it was, 1970 something, I don't know what time, I lost track of days, of years. But um, Bruce McLaren was driving it. Oh, really? And I didn't remember him actually done it because he was interested in the car. He must have asked you for the, the opportunity to drive it. Oh, he wouldn't have needed to ask because he did so much for me. Like every time I went out, as I said, 
he'd want to know how it was going, what it's doing and what it needs to, what I should do to make it better. And he, he did all that, told me all that all the time. And he never left me alone because he wanted to know about the car because his comment was, that I think I might have mentioned it, that he reckoned the car was on Cooper's boring, drawing board when he'd left England. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what had him beat. How the hell we had the car that wasn't even built yet in England. How did that come about? That Lynx had had, had that contact? No, they had no contact at all. It was just some. It wasn't quite the same car, but it looked so much like what was what the other one was going to be, and the fact that it was going as going properly as well, but probably made it look a lot better. But he, uh, you know, he, he was a car builder as well. McLaren was. Yes, of course. Is that the case where a little Aussie backyard, if I may say, had come yeah. up? with the same ideas that a much larger organisation, more funded, among other things, that they'd come up with the same idea through different processes. Yeah, oh yeah. They're just variations on a theme. You know, there would have been lots of things different on it, but they looked similar because it was a bit more streamlined than most other cars at that time. We were way in front in that area, and that's where he was. Cooper was good at too. How did they develop the ideas of streamlining? Again, it was just off the top of the head what seemed right. Oh no, I think they found that. Uh, well, see, there's a lot of a hell of a lot of money spent on aeroplanes and stuff like that. Better, better the shape they were. Air, air, airways, you know, air mm. airflow better, and all that sort of thing made them faster. And you know, just developed the cars as well. Same thing. You and others just looked at other things around you, not just racing cars, but planes. That's right, yeah, that's exactly it. Works for one thing, it should work on another. (laughs) That's a lovely story. I think Bob Jane tended, of course, to be only associated with the sedans. That was a bit more big and brash, do you think, in a way? Yeah, it was, but he he had um, an Elfin Formula whatever my baby car oh really an open wheeler yeah he had an open wheeler i'm sure he had an elephant or a local one anyway it became you say a bit more showmanship didn't it bob was good at that he was definitely a showman yes and i guess that created interest with crowds and so on yeah would have helped him sell tires i think <laughs> did you enjoy the open wheelers as much as sedans um probably not but in their own category, you did enjoy what you're doing with something we'd build ourselves as against someone you'd paid a lot of money for. Hmm, yeah. That's how you've got to think about it in my situation. You either do it or you don't, and you do it because you can afford it, hopefully. Hmm. And you can do the best you can with what you've got again. It didn't matter if it was finished first or last. It, that didn't quite enter into it as long as you went racing. How did you adjust to an open wheeler? It was quite difficult for me because I don't know whether you know or not, but I've had polio early in, in life. Hmm. And we had to build the car around me because so, my ankles don't move much and, or hardly any at all. And I've got to lift my feet off the pedals, which in an open wheel is pretty difficult because the body's in the way above your feet, above your knees. And we had to sort of build the, the body with more clearance around that part of me, if you know what I mean. Hmm. Actually, that's uh, uh, incredible because, as you said, you became very good at cycling. Yeah, that got me walking a bit. Okay, and that's why you did it, to overcome the impact of polio? Yep. You're still racing, you're in your 80s. Do you still get the same thrill out of that? 
Yeah, I do. I'm running in what we call the heritage touring car category at the moment, which is all cars that have got uh, history. Most of them, well, they've all got to have a logbook for the current year years that they're in, and nearly every car that races in heritage went to Bathurst at some time in its life. Right. And uh, the, but the people in the category are a really wonderful group. It's, it's definitely a heritage situation. It's more like what we were talking about the Bob Jane time or the Bruce McLaren time. Mm. Everybody helps one another. It's not pushing that very pure commercial level. That's right. I'm not chasing cheap stations. <laughs> or necessarily fame. I mean, you were probably racing almost before Peter Brock was born, for example. Yeah, well... Okay, there's a fun one for you. Brocky said that I was one of the causes causes of him actually going racing because he watched watched me at Bathurst prior to him being there. Is that right? See, we won Bathurst in 66 in a Mini Cooper S. Yes, of course. With Rondo Alterton. That's the one, yes. Was that the pinnacle of your racing? Uh, Results-wise, yes, because once again, the dollar sign. Hmm. But uh, I had lots of other really, really good <coughs> good results that um, made me pretty happy with me and let people know I'm still around. Like, yeah. you know, every now and then I work on the fact that if you have one super good result, once in 10 years you're going, going pretty well at this, cat- at this uh, sort of part of the category. Yeah. Like I had a good one this year at Eastern Creek. I finished second in in a heritage race with all the V8s and Nissans and things because it rained. And my little Corolla goes pretty well in the rain, so which upsets them real good. But you see, that heritage racing has that element, isn't it? Because they still see the heritage racing where there's a V8 Mustang and a little Mini. That's right, yep. It was a time of David and Goliath, really, wasn't it? Oh, every now and then, as I said, every now and then we get a special result. Like at Bathurst when we won with the Minis. Like the first nine cars that finished in 66 were Minis, and Rano's and mine was a full lap and a half in front of the second one. We've talked a lot about uh, what you did to get that going. Do you still prepare your cars? Oh, yeah, I won't drive anything I don't, unless I put it together myself. Is that a commitment to making sure everything's right? Uh, making sure the damn thing's safe and hopefully nothing's been left undone that might kill you. Modern cars, too complex. Has things become unnecessarily complicated in car racing? Um, yeah, cause, well, it's complicated to me because I can't operate computers at all, but the computer boys make it look easy. You would still tune an engine by the sound of it, I presume. By feel, yeah. You don't have one of those uh, things you put to your ear and listen to the engine, do you? Well, sometimes you put a screwdriver in one end of your ear and the other end. I'm, I don't know that you could pick differences. Hoses do work quite well. Oh, you put a hose to your ear and, and listen to the engine? Yeah, the suck and things like that, you know. It's an art more than a science, is it? Oh, Probably, just a bit of experience having done it for so long with nothing else to do it with. You know, you had to do with what you had and all that sort of stuff. But your cars last well, don't they? Most times. I had a bad day in Tasmania last weekend, but um, <laughs> I had a bloody thermostat stuck. Oh, really? Stuck shut on me, which made things very nasty because it all got hot because I was trying to learn the circuit. 
Oh, okay. Because the circuit I hadn't been to, I think the last circuit in Australia I hadn't been to, even though people down there claimed that I had been there, but I don't remember. Which circuit was that? Baskerville. I know Baskerville. Did you like the circuit? Well, I didn't do enough in it, actually, <laughs> to get to like it. But uh, it's certainly different and you know, very rewarding little circuit and uh, the people down there are very good at it and mm. the two boys I took with me with my couple of my old escorts they went very well and looked after each other very very nicely and uh, everybody had a good time even me without being racing for once. Have you thought of planned for or even accepted retirement as something you invariably have to do? Uh, well it'll happen one day soon but uh, at the moment while I'm still fit enough to get my license and keep the doctor happy and all that sort of thing I'll keep on going till I don't want to do it anymore. At the moment I still want to do it because but it all gets back to people asking why I still do it and I say it's because of the people especially the people in the category I'm in but generally, overall, there's not too many people in motorsport that aren't sort of pretty decent sort of people. Sir Jack Brabham, I believe, said that he wanted to die without any enemies because he'd outlived all the bastards. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. People become very focused on their own egos or their own success. Well, let's face it, motorsport is the ultimate ego sport in my book because if you don't go quite quick enough, um, you go and buy a bigger, a bigger mousetrap sort of thing, you know, a bigger car or a more expensive car so you can go faster. And not always the fact that you're better or, or whatever happens, but the car goes quicker so you look better. But I've stuck to my little baby ones, shopping trolleys, as Larry Perkins calls them. <laughs> Did you get that respect throughout? BMC uh, worldwide when you won Bathurst because it's got to be recognised and you and I have talked the story before that you actually sneaked the car out and gave it uh, your tidied it up yeah. tidied it up what a lovely expression <laughs> and and kept that under your hat but then as you say you won with over a lap did you get the worldwide respect that you deserved for that win um oh. Hard to, hard to put it in those words, but um, like I'm still friends with a lot of people, like Rano, for instance. He's been out and driven with me again in 1992, I think it was, mm. and uh, situations like that, you know, which have uh, kept on going, you know. You weren't necessarily popular with the other mini drivers, I guess principally because you were better. Because I was a rally driver. Oh, yeah, that's right, yes. May I say you've never been held back by the circumstances such as your polio. I mean, that's, that's a staggering achievement. Well, actually, in, a, in its own way, it's probably the reason why I still do things because when I was immobilised early, I used to read and read and read. My mother used to buy, join libraries and we'd get everything out of a library that are likely to want to read. But because I read a lot, I then sort of my own drive made me want to do and see the things I read about. And I did. You were never bitter. Oh, how could you be? What's done's done. What happens, happens. You can't, you know, you can't do much about it. It's too late. So you've got to press on. How old were you when you got onto a push bike to try and help you to start walking? About 12. And I had the polio in 38, or whatever it was. The problems I had were in 1938, which was meant I was six years old then, I suppose. You then actually became uh, very competitive at that. You did well with your cycling. 
Yeah, well, once again, because um, I had to drive to, I had the drive in me to sort of want to do it properly, and I used to do three times, three or four times the amount of training in, in miles, that is, uh, that anyone in who raced with me. And you were nearly selected for the Commonwealth Games? So I believe, yep. <laughs> Jeez, that's amazing. Pretty close. So, Bob, I love talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. And that's Bob Holden, who raced around the time, of course, of Bob Jane, who's just passed away, but perhaps with a different circumstances and, might I say, with a wonderful attitude.